The prisoner will step forward. Baal. Last of the Goa'uld system lords. Murderer of untold millions. These will be your last words. Speak. Welcome to episode 4 of the Gate World Podcast. This is a special bonus episode as we celebrate this week's release of Stargate Continuum. The new SG-1 movie is now on DVD and Blu-ray in North America, and it'll be coming along soon to the UK, Australia, and other countries in just a couple of weeks. Head on over to www.gateworld.net and you'll find our full review of the movie, the Stargate Continuum Viewer's Guide, tons of exclusive videos, interviews, photos, and more. Today's podcast is devoted entirely to Stargate Continuum, so if you haven't seen the movie yet, watch out for lots of spoilers ahead. This show never existed before the timeline was altered, so you have Lord Ball to thank. The Gate World Podcast starts right now. David, how many times have you seen Continuum now? Do you still like it as much as that first time we saw it in the theater? I have seen the movie, and I'll take the questions in order. I have seen the movie three times now. Some parts of it I have seen more than three. Mm -hmm. And yes, I like the movie more than the first time we saw it, because every time I see it, I catch little things that I didn't see before. Like the, the box that the Stargate is in, I didn't see Langford until I was watching it on an aircraft carrier where the words Langford were as long as my body. I was finally able to catch that, and I was like, you know, the attention to detail of yeah, this team. Those are cool little details. Brings a man to tears. Brings a fan to tears. It's a good movie. It's got a little bit of something for everyone in it. And, and what I love about it as a fan is that it's geared toward the non-fan. I can bring my friends in who have never watched the show before and can expose them to to the whirlwind of television entertainment that is Stargate and then give them Children of the Gods or, or the original feature film and have them start at the beginning. Yeah, I've so. got a lot of friends who have said, you know, I've tried Stargate, I've maybe watched it once or twice, but I've never really gotten into it. And I've been meaning now for a while to have a little continuum movie night and see a non-Stargate fan, somebody who's interested in science fiction, but who is not a regular viewer of the show, how they react to continuum and how accessible they think it is. I think I'm going to try that as a little a little fandom social experiment. Tell us how it goes, because, you know, that was, that was one of the reasons why they did this. This has been one of the things that I'm really interested in watching this week as all the reviews have been, been hitting the web and hitting the papers people who are not Stargate fans who have to sit down and write a review of this for their publication. How accessible was the movie to them and how accessible do they think it is to non-Stargate fans? The reviews have been kind of all across the board so far. There have been some I've read that have said, you know, this is a movie for Stargate fans and you're not really going to understand it if you're not into the show. And others who have said just the opposite, which is what we've been saying, especially compared to a movie like Ark of Truth, this one is much more self-contained and much more accessible just as a standalone sci-fi movie. Do we have any indication as to how well it's been selling? No. um, The expectations are that it will hopefully outsell Arc of Truth, I think, based on some of the pre-sale numbers. Oh, uh, I don't think there'll be any problem with that. Yeah, we haven't seen any hard numbers, and we won't hear for another week or two. Some of these sites will start to publish the top ten DVD sellers for the week, and we'll report that on GateWorld. I heard the Amazon pre-orders were off the chart. Oh, yeah. It's been at at, uh, number one on Amazon quite a while, and it's been in the top ten. I think, since it went on pre-sale. 
That's good. So yeah, I've seen the movie three times as well. I, for those who have not been uh, reading the Continuum stuff that we've published on GateWorld or listening to this podcast, you and I saw the movie originally in April on the big screen at the mm-hmm. cast, cast and crew screening in Vancouver. Their private screening, yeah. You know, when I, when I walked out of that theater, I thought, this movie's definitely good, but you know, I just sat eight feet away from Michael Shanks and Amanda Tapping yeah. watching this, and you know, there were 20 other fans from the convention there, and there was tons of people from the cast and crew um and it was it was the big screen and it was a high definition digital projector and awesome sound and i kind of wondered as i left the theater how much of that theater experience and that vancouver experience was sort of coloring my view of the film you know what i mean yeah influencing it i mean you're right you know you're you're watching the movie with the people who made it i don't think i've been this excited about the franchise since atlantis premiered oh yeah so you and know, that was what five years ago now yeah, I sat down on the couch a couple of months after that when I got the DVD screener and sat down on the couch and watched it with my wife and was hoping that it was going to be as good and I think the second continuum, time continuum, right? Continuum. I think the second time I watched it and then last week the third time I watched it it was it was better. It just gets better every time I watch it. Is it because you're seeing more detail or what do you think the reason is that it just gets better and better? You know, I think early on when when I see something for the first time, I'm sort of watching it with a bit of a filter, with a bit of a critical eye, wondering if I'm going to like this, wondering if I can figure out the plot, if I can tell what's coming next, if I'm going to like the way they end it or the way they handle certain story or character Mm -hmm. choices. And now that Mm -hmm. I've seen it a few times and I I know exactly what's coming, I can sort of enjoy every moment of it. It's like going back Mm -hmm. and watching my favorite episodes of the series, watching Mm -hmm. There But For The Grace Of God or The Fifth Race or Abyss... Those are fun to go back and rewatch. I mean, that's why we buy the DVDs to rewatch stuff. It's because it's a totally different level of appreciation. Right. And I have to say that the more I watch something, though, the more I begin to pick at it. I mean, I'm, I'm just that way. Like when in the climax of the film, Mitchell goes through the gate. What, what's, when does he get sent to? Is it 1929? Yeah, 1929. 1929. I ask myself, where did he go? Did he go to Earth? Did he did he go to find the Tokra? You know what happened to him there, or mm-hmm. or when Ball goes into the past at the very beginning and then stays in that timeline? You know what did he do to his alternate self? You know these let's, these little questions that they didn't answer. Yeah, let's let's talk about some of these time travel issues as we get into the actual content of the movie. These are some questions that fans on GateWorld Forum have raised since the movie came out, uh, or rather since it was it was leaked online a few weeks ago. Yeah. Um, yeah, Ball is, is a good question. Ball invents this time machine and makes his way back to 1939 when he shows up on the Achilles. Mm-hmm. So where did he go and how did he get there? Well, we know that he has experienced that timeline with the System Lords once already. Yeah. So he's going to be able to manipulate things relatively in his favor. I mean, the more that he changes things, the more unpredictable it's going to be for him. But obviously, by the time that the 21st century comes around, he's obviously built himself up quite an army and, yeah. and has... Um, he knows what his allies and his enemies are going to do. Mm-hmm. So obviously he can, he can uh, manipulate things and be in the right place at the right time so that he ends up as the most powerful of all the system lords. And let's face it, the gold aren't exactly that unpredictable. This little world in the middle of nowhere, lost and forgotten, until now. Thanks to our Lord Baal, it is ours to enslave and pillage as we please. It is an abomination they have been allowed to breed to such numbers. This target has been buried for centuries and was subsequently involved in a 
unfortunate boating accident. Hence, they've been completely cut off from us. They know nothing of the gold. Obviously, the biggest problem in the last decade that he has to deal with is Anubis. Once Anubis yes. decides that he's going to come back, and he he's a half-ascended ghoul, it's it's one of those big questions, I think, that the movie left unanswered. It's obviously, it's beyond the purview of Ball's plan here and now to take over Earth, is how did he handle that massive thing yeah. before? The first one that really got me bothered was Mobius. Mobius is all about no Stargate. That's the what would have happened... season finale of season eight. Th- yes, thank you. I apologize. <laughs> yeah, you know, that Mobius showed us what would have happened had there been no Stargate. So when Mobius SG-1 decides to travel back into the past and they end up accidentally changing Earth's own history themselves. Mm-hmm. And so they wipe the Stargate program out of existence themselves. Right. Ra takes the Stargate with him because SG-1 helped in the uprising in Egypt and apparently did good enough of a job that, um, that Ra decided to take his complete power base, into, including the Stargate, with him. So in my mind, when Ball did the same, when Ball erased the Stargate program from existence... That should have been the timeline that would have reinstated, where Daniel was a was a an English teacher at a community college, mm-hmm. and where Carter was an astrophysics assistant. She wouldn't have been an astronaut because that storyline would have come back into play again, and she wouldn't have had enough time to become one. So I think there was a little bit of a license that well, Brad took, where he changed the things up a little bit. Yeah, you always have to ask yourself what are the effects that a change in the timeline can potentially have. I mean, talk about chaos theory and the butterfly effect. Yeah. So, obviously, the, the differences between the Mobius timeline, cha- altered timeline, and the continuum altered timeline, where the, the gate was there, and the gate was unburied by Dr. Langford, and was in Egypt until 1939. That's true. There were some differences there. Yeah, that, that, was, that was probably my earliest beef. You know, and some fans have raised some other good questions, too. Okay, so David, give us a little 101 about how we're using solar flares to travel back in time and what, how exactly Ball's time machine works. Well, the basic idea goes all the way back to 1969 where, where SG-1 and Season 2 of SG-1, where the team tried to travel to another planet, but there was a solar flare in the way, and the wormhole inverts back on itself, and they reappear inside Stargate Command. Everything changes around them, and they find themselves trapped in 1969. So the theory here is that the wormhole, which is this astronomical phenomenon, which runs through, I think, does does the wormhole technically run through subspace? Is that what you I think it's a subspace phenomenon, yeah. It's a subspace conduit. It it can get pulled, it can get yanked by uh, the magnetic activity. Now, it's not gravity we're talking about. It's, It's the magnetic activity of a solar flare, right? I have no clue. I openly admit that. As far as I'm concerned, it's just good story. Yeah. But yeah, solar flares and the direction of a solar flare, uh, according to where it is on a star, and so, the direction that the wormhole is pointed. Yeah, if your wormhole happens to pass too close to a star right when it's flaring, flaring and you're in transit, it'll cause your wormhole to, to warble around and get sort of unstuck in space-time. Yeah, it creates a, a time distortion, exactly. Which can be quantified. So now Ball's time machine. Ball's computer. Exactly. His How time did Ball machine. do this? Well, from what I understand, in Season 10's Insiders, he gathered all the, ba- all the base's data mm-hmm. and went off and, and, and saw what they had done. And with that information from Insiders, he was able to construct his time machine. There must be satellites orbiting every one of these stars. There's hundreds of them. 
each sending real-time telemetry back to this computer through subspace. Exactly how does that add up to a time machine? They're looking for something specific. Solar flares. Exactly. Until now, other than ancient technology, the only way we know of traveling backward and forward through time is to pass through a wormhole as it intersects the magnetic field of a solar flare. Now, with enough satellites and enough computing... Yeah, no, 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 that's brilliant. Which button do we press? So he went around through the galaxy and placed all these... Sensors. Sensor satellites that sent real-time telemetry back to this big computer on Praxion through subspace. And so exactly. all these sensors are monitoring all these stars throughout the galaxy looking for solar flares. And he can calculate based on the size... The intensity of a solar flare, the, the direction, of the solar flare, right. Where the wormhole, if you dial from Praxion to this planet or that planet, how close it's going to come to that star. And the, the computer, his computer, can figure out what year that's going to send you to into the past or the right. future. Right, exactly. exactly. So, Which technically, if we follow the 1969 concept, would take you back to Praxion in that time period. Yeah. Have we seen any solar flares that send you to a different planet or to your destination planet with? with uh, the I don't time think change? so. No. Even in 2010, when they used the solar flare, they sent the they sent the note through the wormhole, and it came back through the same stargate yeah, in a different time frame. From Earth to Earth in both exactly. 1969 and 2010. Um, when Shepard went through in the Last Man, the, the That's season true. four finale of Atlantis, he did end up on his destination planet, which is Atlantis. Exactly. Planet. So it is yeah, they've, possible. They've taken a license. And you know, the funny thing is, if Ball had just made his time machine in the original timeline and fixed the timeline to what he wanted and left well enough alone, not made a new time machine in the altered timeline, SG-1 would have had nothing to use to go back in time. But when he fixed the timeline to exactly what he wanted, that's another beef I have. He went ahead, built the time machine again... Ah, and because as soon know, as he as soon as he traveled into the past, yeah, his time machine it was wouldn't no have been there, there. He wouldn't have had access to it. Right, and he's already fixed it. So either at some at some point, he must have rebuilt it and sent all those sensors out there to all those suns again to make mm. additional changes. You know, because that's one of the things that Brad does. He just he just says that well, Ball must have built this time machine again because that's what we need to use to that's fix the time point. machine ourselves. That's a good point. Maybe it was Ball's backup in case something went horribly wrong, which obviously it did and he didn't have the ability to go back to his time machine. Exactly. Try you again. Know, if he had just left well enough and alone and not rebuilt the thing, we, we wouldn't have had anything to use against him. And not only that, but Katesh as well. So my point in going through all of this, all of this solar flare time travel stuff is to say Ball did not necessarily have the technology to precisely target Earth in the year 1939 while the Achilles was on the ocean. He could right. have gated to any planet years right. before that and just knew from the historical data in the SGC database that he had stolen, mm -hmm. just knew that that was the time to gate to Earth. Which is, you know, which is an interesting gamble because the Stargate was found with its cover stone. And if... A, Dr. Langford had decided to transport the Stargate vertically instead of horizontally, in which case he would have come out and then fallen back in and killed. Mm. And B, the Stargate hadn't been transported with its cover stone in place. He wouldn't have been able to access that gate anyway. Well, I guess that's why he has Jaffa to send through first. They're your uh, walking, exactly. breathing, walking yeah. breathing melps. Because we know Ra tried to send uh, Jaffa back through the Stargate when the cover stone was already in place, and they were smashed to smithereens. 
But still, you know, all picking aside, what we ended up with was a great film, was a great romp. Yeah, it's it's a great story. And of course, the other one to travel through using the time machine is Mitchell. And we know that he went to 1929, so he had to hang around for 10 years. Oh yeah, he was aged by the time by the time Ball came through. If you look at, at how the solar flares work, he didn't necessarily gate to Earth. Something exactly. that people on the forum have brought up. Maybe he gated, found himself on some random planet, and then had to get back to Earth. The gate That's... had been unburied in 28, so maybe he managed to gate through while it was sitting around in Egypt being studied. Yeah, I'm I'm under the assumption that he gated back to Praxion and must have hooked up with with Tokra or one of their allies. He must have he must have f- figured out some way of doing it. Mm-hmm. Yeah, there's a whole untold story there, I think. Yeah, you know, and and yay for Mitchell, you know. I mean, this is this is this is something that that we Mitchell fans have been waiting for for a long time, you know. It was Ben Browder is notorious for saying, you know, I'm just a part of the show, you know. I I play my part and that's it. But you know what? I'm glad that that Mitchell had a significant role to play in this one. Mm-hmm. You know, it was about time. Yeah, he got to be the hero who uh, made it through the gate and saved the day. Not that everyone else wasn't also a hero for making it happen and defending him. But what also happened to his family's history in the process because the Mitchell in the future you know, that was the point that you raised to me the first time we saw the film and I didn't catch it that time where what was that? you said Mitchell, he said didn't you catch it? And I'm like what? He said Mitchell is sure that the last ball clone is gone. He's not assuming. He, he knows for sure that, that there are no clones left. This Mitchell has knowledge of something you know, mm-hmm. because he's, he has a picture of himself with his grandfather is it? In his locker so something's up there yeah. No. If he's really that sure, then he may have more than just that picture passed on from his family, from his father or his, or his grandmother. He may and have what happened some to knowledge. himself. Yeah. You know, yeah, what happened well, to his altered self? Well, if Mitchell, if, if we say he's maybe in his early 40s, when he gates back to 1929, then he's going to be alive probably into the, what, probably the 60s. Mm-hmm. At least. Interesting questions raised. But the movie is just. Uh, visual extravaganza, never mind the the visual effects. I mean, the Arctic alone is worth its weight in gold. I wish there could have been a little bit more of an Arctic element to it. I was disappointed when that was over, but um, uh, they only had five days up there to shoot, and I think they did an incredible job. Yeah, you know, it's it makes for some really beautiful scenery. I kind of wonder what more they could have done with it than just sort of bundling up and walking and talking in the wind. Yeah. I wonder what else you can actually shoot up there. Well, like Martin Wood was saying in our interview with him, it doesn't really matter which direction you're facing as long I mean, as long as you're thinking about where the sun is, you know. Let's shoot this way. Mm-hmm. A lot of scenes from Empire Strikes Back were shot just outside of the cast and crew's hotel. It's what they did with it was was exceptional. And and yeah, it, it would have been interesting to see uh, see a little bit more, but for what they were going for, I think I think they did a great job. Mm-hmm. It propels the story forward. Yeah, and I really like the stuff on the submarine. I like the fact that the captain and crew of the sub were were in the movie. And acting. That was very well done. Let's talk a little bit about Jack. Yeah, Richard Dean Anderson, back for another round. A little bit of, I don't know, debate, discussion among fans. Some wish that he would have been there more, that it's maybe not really worth having Jack in the movie unless he's center stage, unless he's the star. Really, some people felt that way. What did you think of the size of his role? Frankly, um... I would have liked a little bit more. I think a uh, special appearance by in the opening tile is uh, appropriate. Mm-hmm. You know, he got to have a lot of fun and got to uh, be a part of that storyline, but certainly he was not required. 
there was really no real reason for him to be there other than Jack's back and you know that's an added incentive to go and buy this DVD and the fact that he was he was with the team again was a, a great incentive for us fans to to pick it up and watch it there are any more of you I should know about no look um, I understand how weird this is about four hours ago one of our satellites took the damnedest picture you ever did see how did you get here so fast? I was already on my way up here to supervise a training exercise on the ice. And then I got orders to make a drop to determine what caused this. Whatever that was, is gone. And you have no idea what this is. You're the astronaut. You tell me. I think that uh, the amount that he's in this sort of brings us back to season 7 and 8 of SG-1. Every time a new episode aired every week, there was this much Jack or that much Jack, and there was some consternation among fans as to how much he was and wasn't appearing in the show. As, yeah, as it's the like... title star. Right, exactly. Like, what what in- injury is he going to suffer this week that's going to take him out of most of the action or... One of my favorite ones was in season seven's Fallout, where where he's not getting any negotiating done with the Langarans, so he and Tilk basically excuse themselves for eighty percent of the show. <laughs> Thought that was really interesting, but you know you have they had to write him out, and um, yeah, he's you know. suffering an injury, or or in season eight he's he's the general in charge of the base, so he has a conference scene at the conference table, and then we don't see him anymore. What I really like about Continuum and Jack's appearance in Continuum is that he's got stuff to do. He's got some great lines. He's there with the team off-world at the beginning. Mm-hmm. Obviously, t- getting murdered by Ball is pretty, murdered by ball, pretty yeah. darn dramatic. Uh, he got to go to the Arctic and, and run around in the snow with a gun with um, his right-hand man, Major Wood, mm-hmm. and got to go on the sub. And I think he's he's out and he's doing stuff. It's, it's a lot more interesting than Jack from Season 8. One of the things that, that Richard Dean mentions on the, on the uh, red carpet... Uh, in San Diego was, you know, the Arctic and Antarctic were like the two continents that he hadn't visited. So, you know, that was that was really cool that he was that he was able to be a part of that and that that fans are are able to witness some of that footage. You know, in the end, it's a really good product. How many times am I going to say that this movie's good before we're at the end of this podcast? It's a good movie. Pick it up. <laughs> Did you like Seriously? it? Did you like it? Yeah, I liked it. I liked it. So lots of other familiar faces in the movie. Uh, Major what? Davis is back. Now this is really cool. We see Major Davis in this opening shot right at the very beginning, and he walks around the corner, and we never see him again. Yeah, you know, I was surprised at that. He's kind of a significant um, recurring character throughout the history of the series. Exactly, and the same with Vince Cristeo, you know. I mean, you doesn't have a word of dialogue, yet they spent the time to bring him in. Mm-hmm. You know, Camulus has, what, one line? Nearty has one line. Kronos mm-hmm. has, has a couple, you know. But the effort that they expended to bring them in, as far as I'm concerned, was worth it, despite oh, yeah. the fact that we couldn't have a little bit more of an arc for these characters in this movie. Yeah, I think it really helps the movie to feel bigger. It adds a lot of texture to the movie to see all these recurring characters and then have them have really tiny roles. Exactly. Well, you know, and there's a lot of subtext there too. I mean, when Katesh orders Cronus to kill Teal, when Cronus or any of his his goonies find Teal, you know, you can see in Cronus's eye that you know this will not be a problem. You know, Teal's father Ronak was first prime of Cronus, and people who have been watching the show know this stuff, and that's all subtext in, yeah. in this film. I don't know about you, but I got the impression from from Cronus and the way that he was interacting with Katesh that he really was on her side and saw her treachery coming from a long ways away. Maybe they yeah. were, maybe they were even in on it together. The way that he says, "My queen." Exactly. He's the first one that she contacts. 
and he's basically like Ball's lieutenant. You know, if, yeah. if Ball's incapacitated or indisposed, you know, then then Katesh turns to Kronos and says, "Execute this command," which is really good. You yeah. know, I I, I was and a big fan. No of hesitation us. on his part. Yeah. I think nope. they were. I think they were in on it from the beginning. I think he saw it coming. Really? Yeah. Huh. I didn't think of that that way. President Hayes, General Hammond. Yes. Yeah, I was asking myself, you know, Hayes is, if if he was elected a second time, you know, Hayes' second term is almost up, and they need to really spend time on bringing him back. Yeah, that's true. It's one of the things that I think um, Brad has been hinting about is in this third movie, you know, that he keeps on suggesting that uh, the Stargate will be revealed, and uh, Hayes' second term of office would almost be up, so that'd be a good reason to, to bring him back. And to see Don S. Davis in there was fantastic. You know, another another character that was not necessary to bring back, but they brought him back anyway because he's a good actor and because fans love to see him. Mm-hmm. And God rest his soul, you know, it, it's now even better that he's in there, mm-hmm. you know, cause, um, he's, because he's passed away. Yeah, it's bittersweet to see him again, but so, so appreciated. I mean, this, this movie comes only 30 days after his passing. Mm-hmm. It's just mm-hmm. wonderful to see him one last time. You should have heard the cheers on the midway when he came on screen. There was an uproar, you know, and it was it was really, really great. That's great. Yeah. General Hammond. Sir, it's good to see you. If you say so. Let's talk about the visual effects from the movie. We've got the Gould fleet attacking Earth. We've got the F-15, Death Glider, Russian MiG combat sequence. We've got, obviously, Ball's huge time machine at the end is the centerpiece. So much to look at in this movie that I thought was just cool. My favorite shot, I think, in the entire movie, my favorite visual effect shot, is when the MiGs come in and engage the Death Gliders, and then they all peel up and away into the exactly. sky. Exactly. Yeah, that was a beautiful shot. That that also awarded uh, a, a number of applause on the midway. You know, that that's just a great moment, and they very appropriately used that in the teaser trailer. You know, mm-hmm. yeah, that was that was a great sequence. You know, I had visioned that in my head being a day sequence, and I was really surprised that it was a night scene. That was very well achieved. You know, one of those that wasn't really necessary to be in there. But I was really happy that they took the time to to say that SG-1 in, encountered some resistance while on their mission. That was a treat, you know, something that we hadn't really seen before. Especially now that we don't have our F-302s in this timeline. Now we have yeah. old-fashioned F-15s, and that's uh, that was a lot of fun. Yeah, it was very cool. It's a good way to, to take the altered timeline storyline and use that, I think, to to give a new look to the show. Because we've been looking at 302s as cool as they are. We've been looking at them for a long time now. And to have SG-1 doing combat in F-15s is something we haven't really seen before. There's not a whole lot more to say about the visual effects, I think, other than they're just absolutely amazing. This is one area where I think you cannot accuse Continuum of just being a big, long episode. Because they had a little bit of extra money, and I think it really shows in areas like the visual effects... I think if they're not theatrical feature quality, they're really close and with a little bit more money. You know, Stargate really shows you what they can do with a little bit of money. And and with connections, you know? I mean, the raising of the Alexandria. How awesome. Well, as much as we like cool explosions and spaceship battles, I think we'd also be remiss if we didn't talk about the character moments that are in this movie. One of the things that disappoint me about SG-1 is that the character scenes are the first to go, and they get deleted all the time. I mean, that exchange between Daniel and himself, you know, that one-sided exchange? 
is a beautiful piece. Yeah, that, and it really says a lot. That's really one of the scenes that that has stuck with me since the first time I saw the movie was was the scene where Daniel is sitting on on his bed and he decides he's just finished reading his own book and he decides to call the alternate timeline version of himself and try and give him some encouragement, tell him he believes him and don't give up. Hello, Dr. Jackson. Yes, I'm sorry. I'm uh, I'm calling so late. I'm calling from the states and well, I've stayed in that hotel myself a number of times, and I just thought that you might... Well, because I wanted to tell you something. That you're right. About everything. About the pyramids, about... What the glyphs said about aliens visiting Earth, everything. It doesn't matter who I am. Let's just say I'm, I'm someone who believes in your work. And you should, too. I think it's, it's a great little character moment that obviously never would have made it onto the screen... Mm-hmm. in the TV series, and I'm sad to say, if you listen to the audio commentary, Brad reveals that that scene gets cut for the TV version of Continuum. That really is a shame. But yeah, you know, it's it's not a scene that moves the plot forward, but it's a scene that shows the character of that character, and ostensibly the franchise as a whole. You know what this franchise is about. It's about the characters. It's not necessarily about the action or the space battles or the techno babble. To me, that's not what Stargate is, you know? To me, it's, a, it's about exploring Daniel, and it's about exploring Carter and Teal and, and Mitchell and Jack and Fala. It's about discovering their humanity, you yeah. know, and, and learning a little bit about myself in the process, you know, yeah. if yeah. I am so willing. I was recruited Stargate Command the Stargate is a branch of the United States Air Force, founded in 1994, so no I forget the exact year, for the purposes of exploration and establishment. Actually, it was, it was less an altered timeline, and it was this kind of multiverse thing. But, it operates uh, in secret from the side. And so the point is, I, I know what you're Stargate thinking, Thinking I'm insane. And it was capable of operating, but none of the random addresses. A list. You, you want the whole list of everything. And that's when so I realized that the symbols were actually constellations, okay. and it was just a matter of determining which of the 39 symbols never in the ring represented the and point of origin. Do you think fan expectations were set too high for this movie? I know you and I saw the movie back in April, and we just loved it. We we went out onto Gate World and started saying, you know, this is yeah. if this is not the best Stargate episode ever. This is definitely in the top three or top five. Um, and, you know, yeah. I've, I've kind of been surprised now that the movie is out to see a, a good amount of negative response to the movie. Yeah, I've been really surprised at that, and and I would not be surprised if we were partially to blame. I have friends who say, you know, if I go see a movie, they say, don't tell me what you thought of it. Because if you thought it was fantastic, I'm going to watch it and not enjoy it as much. Mm. If you thought it was terrible, I'm going to love it. And I wouldn't be surprised if something like that happened here, you know? Yeah. One of the things that I did notice when I watched the film a second time is basically it's that climax of the ring transporters coming in and more and more Jaffa spilling out into Praxion. Mm-hmm. You know, that's basically the climax of the movie. Mm-hmm. And to be frank, it's something that we've seen before. I was just watching Lost City the other day, SG-1 season 7 finale, you know. That sure. whole climax is about the Call Warriors continuing to spill into Atlantis Outpost and them trying to fight them off, you know. It's it's something that we've seen before. Yeah, and you then know, you and add after- elements like 2010. We've seen trying to get through the gate yeah. to go fix the timeline before. We've seen all of SG-1 getting shot in the back and dying, trying to make it through the gate in 2010. Yeah, and, right. And, and after the glider 
dogfight. If you're something, if you're expecting something truly phenomenal after that, having seen the franchise up to this point, I can understand people being a little disappointed and, and wanting to see more or wanting to see something like different. Yeah, um, I think that I understand the criticism, but my evaluation of it overall is I think the ending of the movie is very satisfying, and I think it's very consistent with what the franchise is and the sorts of stories that we get from the franchise. Yeah. I think that it's easy for some fans to jump to the conclusion that something is not fresh or not original or rehashed because it's similar to something that they've seen, when in fact it's it has some elements in common with something that they've seen. But it's really a new twist. Just because Continuum involves time travel doesn't mean it's 2010. Just because Continuum has an alternate reality doesn't mean that it's Mobius. Mm-hmm. So yeah. there's, there's a difference, I think, between a rehashed plot and going back to the well and using some really tried-and-true science fiction staples like time travel and alternate realities. Yeah. And with a history as extensive as SG-1, you know, you, you, you run into the characters rehashing things again because they've encountered a problem before and they know how to solve it. That scene with SG-1 and Hayes when they talk about going back to Proclarus Teonas, mm-hmm. I was saying to myself, no, no, you can't you, – you're not actually considering doing this again, are you? Mm-hmm. Essentially playing Lost City over again. Mm-hmm. And, you know, that's what their intent is to do. Their intent is to to commandeer an Alkesh or a cargo ship and go to Proclarush and find the ZPM and, and play Lost City all over again. Mm-hmm. And all the while I'm thinking to myself, okay, someone please interrupt this mission as soon as possible so that we don't have to actually consider yeah. that they're going to do this again. And I think you've got to give Brad all the credit in the world for bringing that up and being consistent with what the characters would have thought about doing and then not replaying that yeah. story out. yeah. I mean, you have over 200 hours of story. What is it, 214? There's no reason that he should have thought of that, and yet he went out of his way and, and made sure that, you know, that the characters would have actually considered that. You know? Yeah, if that, that hadn't would have been, been in their there, next option. If that hadn't been in there, if, if we had just found out that the Russians had, had one of the Stargates and headed straight for Russia, I think it would have been a, a legitimate complaint on the part of yeah. viewers to say, what about the ancient outpost in Antarctica that's full of drones? Yeah. SG-1 that's knows right. about this. Fans would have had something else to complain about. Well, <laughs> so I, I don't know. It's, it's a hard question to ask if expectations were set too high. Everybody obviously watches movies differently. Everybody, you know, some people like spoilers. Some people don't want to know anything. They, they don't even want to watch a trailer or a TV commercial for a movie that they're excited about. For our part, I think we're we're fanboys who just saw the movie and we're giddy with excitement and we're excited about about being rejuvenated in our love for the Stargate franchise. Yep, sue us. I think you also have to recognize that this is a this is a movie that that cost somewhere in the neighborhood of seven million. I think Brad told us that between Arc and Continuum, Continuum got a little bit more. Yes, um, but still, you know, between seven and ten million, maybe. This is a direct-to-DVD movie that, if you calculate it out minute for minute compared to the television series, I did the math, and, and they got about about 65 66% more money. That's, that's not a lot more money to do a DVD film. This is not a $100 million movie. I think that, at the end of the day, fans really have to appreciate Continuum for what it is, which is it's a direct-to-DVD $7 million movie based on a TV show that they love. You know, fans continually complain that this movie was not in theaters. 
why isn't this movie in theaters, you know? And, and that's a question that I raise. And I recently had a, a conversation with someone, and they asked me, do you have any idea how much it costs to advertise for a feature? Mm-hmm. Let's say a movie costs I do. $80 million to create. Mm-hmm. The advertising alone for that movie can be an additional $80 million. Yep. Dollars. Yeah, that's, that's why some movies that cost eighty million are still in the hole even after they've made so even after they've made so much of that money back because the advertising in the movie doesn't account for any of the movie's production whatsoever. Exactly, and a lot of movie viewers in general don't realize that, and that error gets perpetuated even by journalists who yeah. say, "Well, you know, this movie cost a hundred million to make, and it." opened at 110 million so it's already made back all its money and the studio that's has not true now it's not true at all most films yeah. except for those super big summer blockbusters like batman most movies don't make any money in the theater they lose money and then the studio makes money in things like dvd sales and pay-per-view mm-hmm. and international mm-hmm. licensing yeah, it's not as cut and dry as everyone thinks. You know, they may have spent seven million dollars making this movie, but they could have easily spent another hundred million dollars in properly advertising it. It's just, it's just not conceivable. Yeah. And you know, SG One, you know, as Stargate is as well known as it is, you know, at this point, who knows how well it would have done? It probably would not have properly made its money back. You know, so I think it's important for baby steps at this point, and Continuum hopefully sure. will do well enough that it will springboard itself into an eventual feature release. I do want to read one one post that was made on the site. Lots of people have come onto the website since Continuum came out, and they've, they've posted their comments uh, on the news thread. They've posted over on the forum. And this is one critique that I wanted to, to read on air. It's from Metrozyme, and he says, I think people who think Continuum is a great movie are conducting an exercise in nostalgia and wishful thinking. But people see what they want to see. Sometimes we so desperately want something to be great that we build it up to the point where a mediocre film magically becomes great. Continuum, he says, was in no way, shape, or form a great film. I also feel we've been rooked by the Stargate hype machine, which built this film up so unrealistically to be the greatest SG-1 project ever. It isn't by a long shot. I'll be darned. Yeah, it sounds like someone reviewing episode one of Star Wars. Yeah, it's tough. This is this is not just a challenge for Gate World and those of us who are reporting on a movie and trying to get people excited about a new Stargate project, but it's it's a concern for all fans watching Stargate mm-hmm. or watching anything, watching any any movie mm-hmm. or new TV show. How do you set your expectations properly, and mm-hmm. then how do you judge the final product once it's out? Mm-hmm. You know, I'm sure there are going to be episodes of Atlantis this season that I'm not going to like. And I'm going to tell it like it is. I'm going to say that I don't like it, you know. It is unrealistic for me to pander to the producers of the show, some of whom are my friends, for me to say, everything that you guys have come out with is great. I'm sorry, man, but that's unrealistic, you know. Not everything is great. But in my opinion, Continuum was great. That's my opinion. That's all it is, you know. And anyone else's opinion is as equally valuable as mine. I will openly say that. But hey, I thought Continuum was great, and I helped promote it as such. Yeah. Well, thanks to Metrozyme and everybody else who's posted on the website. Thanks for your opinions. Uh, We're going to set up a way for you to share your opinion in the form of your voice on air here on the GateWorld podcast. We'll talk about that in just a minute. But, David, the last question that I had for us to talk about is why why do we think that Continuum is, after 12 years, still one of Stargate's best? 
Continuum captures everything that I love about the franchise. I don't watch a television show because of a character. I'm not one of those people that when Rick left the show at the end of season eight, I, I know there was a mass exodus from fandom, you know, of people saying goodbye, you know, because they only watched it because of Rick. That's not me. Mm. I don't watch it because of the techno babble. Frankly, I get a little cross-eyed like Jack. <laughs> I don't watch it because of romance. I like, I like sex in my sci-fi about as much as I like hair in my food, you know? I mean, if, <laughs> if you, and if you want to Farscape like, you know, if... I was going to say, obviously you haven't watched Farscape yet. Yeah, if you want that sort of thing, go to watch Farscape, you know? But if I wanted Shepard and Taylor to get together, I'd turn on ABC Daytime, for crying out loud. Uh, but, you Are know, Shepherd there's... Shepard and Taylor on ABC Daytime? Well, you know, they're equivalent. But, That'd be an um, interesting show. Okay, yes, fine, fine, fine. Okay, foot in my mouth. But, you know, Continuum has a nod towards certain interpersonal relationships. Continuum has nods toward the history of the show by the characters that they bring into it. It has a cool time travel twist. It has great appearances by Richard Dean Anderson and by Bo Bridges. And it has a little bit of everything. I love Stargate for all that it is. And Stargate Continuum is all that Stargate is. It really is a little bit of everything. And it's very fulfilling in that regard. What about you? Yeah, I think you're right that it has a little bit of everything. Some of the reasons that I've enjoyed the show over the years is the characters, is the, the technobabble. I like the sci-fi geek element of what Carter brings. You know, every time Carter launches into technobabble in the series and Jack shuts her up, I always want to give Jack a smack because I want to hear the rest of the explanation. Mm -hmm. So the characters, the science of the show, one thing that has always kept me a fan of Stargate is the fact that the show is so self-referential that we'll bring in past characters and story elements. The fact that the movie has time travel by solar flares, which is now uh, an element that's 10 years old that our characters have known about for 10 years. The fact that Continuum brings in all those system lords. The fact that we get to hear about Teonas again, and there's that idea surface that, that maybe we should go to Teonas. Stargate is, is still at the core. Stargate is an action-adventure show, which, uh, which I love. But as an action-adventure show by itself, I think, I think it's, it's incomplete. It's when we have the characters that we love uh, having a chance to not just run and gun, but have time with each other, explore their relationships with each other. One of my favorite lines in the movie is when Daniel says, Bye, in the Arctic. Yeah. Because he thinks he's about to die. There, there doesn't seem to be any hope. It's so simple, but I think it's a great moment for the characters, and I think it's the characters that make Continuum great, along with the story and along with the special effects and along with Joel Goldsmith's great score. I think you're right. I think this has everything everything that Stargate does well that has made us love Stargate sort of episode by episode over the years. It all comes through in Continuum in one big package. It really does. If Stargate is nothing else... It is about the possibilities. What is on the other side of that event horizon? Who are we going to meet? And more importantly, what are they going to say about us? What are they going to teach us about ourselves? You know, what are the problems out there that we can fix? You know, who are we going to run into? What are we going to run into? You know, how, how are we going to better ourselves? Is, is what's on the other side of this particular event horizon going to injure us, going to, going to kill us? going to help us to expand our knowledge about who we are, you know? Yeah, we love Continuum, and I, I really hope that as people sit down to watch it, 
and watch it again and again over the coming months and years that they find something in it that they love. Yeah, I think it's going to ultimately be a classic. It's just come out, you know, it's it's a little tumultuous right now. A lot of people love it, a few people hate it, but in the end I think it's really going to be one that's uh, going to go down in history, you know, that's going to withstand the test of time. That's it for our discussion of Continuum today. Be sure to head over to GateWorld.net to look for our official formal review of the movie, and you can order the soundtrack now straight from GateWorld. We'd love to hear what you thought of Stargate Continuum. We'd also love to hear your thoughts on this podcast. You can email webmaster at GateWorld.net, post on the podcast feedback thread on the forum, or we have a brand new phone number for you today. You can call and record a voice message about Continuum, about this podcast, about anything Stargate that crosses your mind. Tell us what you thought of the new episode. Tell us what you thought of last week's episode. Anything that strikes your fancy, call 616-712-1647. Once again, the GateWorld Podcast hotline is 616-712-1647. And long-distance rates do apply. From GateWorld.net, this is Darren Sumner. And I'm David Reed. And you've been listening to the GateWorld Podcast. <laughs>